You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by retired Colonel Pat Mahaney. Today we're, li- we're talking to Colonel Retired Patrick Mahaney. I've known Colonel Mahaney for a long time, but actually, sir, I'd like to, if you could give us just a little bit of your background. And since we'll be talking about urban operations today, you know, how did you, like myself, kind of get drawn in or start to focus on urban operations? Sure, John. Well, first of all, thank you very much for the interview, and I appreciate the opportunity to discuss this topic, one that uh, I'm very passionate about. And to answer your question, uh, so I was literally born into it. So uh, I live and work right now in Brooklyn, New York, currently on Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn, New York. But I was uh, born and raised in Flatbush, Brooklyn, and lived around the city here in New York. My father was a firefighter during what here is referred to as the war years, meaning a time of tremendous turbulence. And so as a child growing up, uh, I was in a world of firefighters, police officers, uh, military veterans, people returning back from Vietnam at that point. Uh, and I could see some of the challenges about living and, and operating, frankly, in uh, a dense urban environment. Uh, the city back then, I sometimes say facetiously, was more like a zombie apocalypse than the uh, sparkling gem that New York has become at this point. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to be around a lot of the people who were on the quote-unquote front lines at that time. Obviously, that was mainly from a first responder point of view. Uh, but when I uh, graduated college, went into the Army, uh, it was something I was very much drawn to. Uh, my fr- I was a military police officer to start with. Um, I ended up spending 24 years in special forces. But as a, a military police officer, the first place I wanted to go to was, uh, was Panama. Panama at the time was particularly Panama City, but Cologne as well. But uh, Panama City was uh, in a period of tremendous instability. It was an urban environment. Uh, I spoke Spanish. Uh, and I was definitely drawn towards those kinds of operations. Had I not gone to Panama, I was extremely interested in uh, Berlin, which was a very big deal at the time with the Berlin Brigade. I'm talking back in 1987, 88. Uh, and then also Korea, because the greater Seoul metro area fascinated me and uh, still does. There's a lot there, actually, the questions that I, I want to ask, especially about the you know Berlin Brigade, which is really a novelty in somebody creating an urban-focused uh, unit which um, I've written about. Some people do it. The British have one. So now you work, you're, you're retired, but you're still doing urban things. Is that right? It's pretty much the what I do. I do that wearing a government hat uh, as a special government employee, working with the Undersecretary of Defense Research Engineering, an innovation program that they have in there called MD5. Uh, and I also have co-founded a 501c3 called the National Center for Urban Operations that is focused on exactly this subject matter. And the big idea in all of that was seeing the need within the Department of Defense, especially within for the ground forces, the Army and the Marine Corps, also special operations, to the need to for us to really wrap our brains around this and and focus on it the way that it in a way that was appropriate. And when I say that I mean specifically in terms of conceptual development, material development, training, of course and also education. And what I've seen, especially having had a chance like you, the opportunity to work on this since about 2013, I I think we've made tremendous strides, but uh, we've just scratched the surface. There is so much work to be done here. uh, And I would highlight that it's, for me, 
while the urban aspect of it and dense urban aspects of it are quite obvious, what we're really dealing with here is the emerging complex operating environment. Uh, and that's how I was originally drawn to this back when I commanded Asymmetric Warfare Group. We were directed to focus on the complex operating environment. I would argue that a dense urban area and certainly megacities are about the most complex operating environment you could possibly uh, have on Earth. And so therefore, any of the work that we're doing, in the, particularly in this dense urban space, by definition, is going to be uh, intricately interwoven with uh, the issues of complexity and how we prepare our troops uh, to operate in that type of environment. It's fascinating. So you were the commander of the Asymmetric Warfare Group, which not if, if the listeners don't know, the Army gives them almost the hardest problems and expects them to turn solutions either tactically or broader. How did you back then in AWG, define a complex operating environment? Right. So essentially, uh, let me just take you back quickly to 2011. Uh, I just come out of my seventh tour in Afghanistan. General Robert Cohn was the com new commanding general of TRADOC, which is the Army's Training and Doctrine Command. Uh, then Major General H.R. McMaster had taken over the Maneuver Center of Excellence. I uh, had General Perkins, who later became commanding general of TRADOC, was at the Combined Arms Center or the CAC. And the point here is that we had been at war for a solid 10 years, and the questions were being asked, and I think rightfully so, are we winning? What does winning look like? Are we learning the lessons that we need to learn from these emerging operations that are increasingly uh, being uh, labeled as hybrid, asymmetric, irregular, unconventional? Um, at the end of the day, they were hard. <laughs> they were hard because they're very complex. And in many cases, we were using approaches for as adaptive as the forces are, particularly U.S. forces, and I'll certainly speak on behalf of ground forces, um, for as adaptive and clever uh, and tactically brilliant uh, as we were. At the operational level, we were doing okay, but strategically, we, we, were, we were seeing Groundhog Day all over and over again. And so we had to ask ourselves a lot of hard questions, such as, are we learning lessons? Are we getting lessons learned or are we merely coming across lessons observed, things that we observe, but we don't actually incorporate into uh, the institutions of the army? Do we incorporate them in doctrine, organization, training, material development, leadership development? And that was a, uh, it was a hard discussion to have, frankly, but it was very refreshing. Um, I think it spurred a tremendous amount of, uh, of important and useful work. And so he start, essentially started settling on this term, complex operating environment. And so the easiest way to describe the complexity we're talking about is, is just focus on what we call the, the uh, operational variables, of course, PMEZI PT, something you're very familiar with. And the acronym, for those of you who don't know, stands for political, military, economic, social, uh, infrastructure, informational, and then physical terrain. But the, I would focus on just a few of those. For example, political, military, economic, social. Just take those elements right there. We like to take a reductionist approach and say, well, we're the military, so we just focus on those things that are military, uh, direct action, um, combined arms maneuver. And that's there's a reason for that, because war fighting is incredibly difficult. It's very dangerous, obviously. It, that's the essence of much of what we do. But in these complex environments, the political, the economic, the social, the informational aspects dealing with uh, infrastructure, for example, those may be just as important, if not more important. And the salient point is that you can't ignore them. And if that's true, then you have to ask yourself, have we prepared ourselves to do that? What are the ways in which we prepare our troops to be able to deal with, for example, the political aspects of the operational environments we're going to go into, the economic aspects, the social aspects? And we 
in our professional military education, we'll address this to a degree, particularly the political aspects. And usually that has to do with the um, international system, relations between nations. And that's very important. But what happens when you're in, in an operating environment where those elements are still important, but then you start looking into su- issues, for example, of subnational governance, meaning if you're in Afghanistan or Iraq, and you're now having to deal with local conditions, provincial conditions, what does that look like on the ground when you're dealing with tribal groupings, when you're dealing with what I used to refer to as gray area players, meaning they may be contractors, they may be uh, leaders, informal or formal, who you don't realize are as powerful as they are. And that brings us to the point of, do we really even understand power? Everything about power as it's uh, executed in terms of those those variables, the power of money, the power of ideas, the power uh, that may reside in a local uh, shura or local governing council that may in fact be more influential than what's being said in the capital city. And that's complex. <laughs> that's hard. I think that many of us uh, would emphasize that our troops became pretty good at that, but it seems like we had to learn it by experience over and over again. And so fall back on something General Cohn used to talk about, which is he, t- he compared uh, the situation we were in to a stool, a three-legged stool. So you had training, education, and experience. And what had happened over time, at least at that time, we'd become really good in terms of experience. We had a tremendously experienced force who pretty much had figured this out on the battlefield. But looking forward, do, had we incorporated all of that into our training or into our education, or were, were our education and training suffering and we were simply relying on very painful uh, experience, which is purchased in blood and treasure, where we were relying too much on that. And I think it opened up a conversation, uh, certainly internal to TRADOC, but more broadly on, okay, so then what do we have to do with this? And, and I'll leave you with this thought on that. One of the things that struck me from that period of time and still stands with me, and frankly, it's something I, I felt when I was growing up here in New York, was that some of this you have to experience. You don't want to experience it for the first time on a battlefield. For example, in a, a dense urban area or a large city, you don't want to have that experience. If you're going into uh, something, a, a military operation, that shouldn't be your first time having that experience. You should be able to, through training and education, have that uh, an immersion experience. So that becomes experiential. You have to literally go into some big cities and get a sense of what that's like. I would argue, and there are plenty of people who take a contrary opinion, but I would argue that some of that you literally physically have to get into that environment. You have to understand what makes these areas, in this case cities, but any complex environment, what makes it tick? How do people who survive or operate in that environment, be they first responders, utilities people, be they any, anybody with relevant information, how do they do that? What does that look like? And I would argue you can't really get that from a book. Books are useful. Theories are very, very useful, in fact. But there's a component there that when it comes to the complex OE, you have to experience it. And so what we want to do is do that to the left of going into an actual operation, meaning before going into an actual operation. And finally, that leads us to uh, redouble our efforts with the training and education aspects of this. Fascinating, sir. There's a a lot there. One of the things I keyed on was the, the power. If you remember General Townsend, who just come back from commanding the operation to support the Iraqi security forces in the liberation of Mosul back in uh, June of 2017, um, at, at that conference in New York City, General Townsend got up and said, you know, if I could, could do it all over again, I think one of the things that we miss is understanding power. He said flows in power. 
um, which I know you're very familiar with the flows of understanding flows of urban environments of what they need to come in and what, what has to come out. But power, I've done a lot of thought on, does our current model, which to understand any operating environment, and you talked about it in the permissive PT and looking at the political, and most of those don't get down into specifics on how do you know who has power in the environment you're entering? Are you siding with trying to create a legitimate power when there is just way more complex than that, when there are power actors all throughout the environment. And I wonder if our if we're going to continue to use the same methodologies, whether it's permissive PT, ASCOPE, or METTC, all these military acronyms that help us understand the operating environment, should power be added to that equation? John, I absolutely think so, yes. <laughs> so uh, now in the Pemisi PT, I, I, you could argue that you know, political, economic, military, those are, those are elements of power in and of themselves. But to pick up on where you're going with that, I strongly agree. So part of it is, is outlook and philosophy. Um, I, not to geek out here on ancient history, but if, I think that as you look at what changes and what doesn't, as has been pointed out in, in the Army operating concept, for example, and a lot of the work that General H.R. McMaster had done, you have to ask yourself what changes and what doesn't. You know, what's the continuity and what's the change? Um, if Speaking for myself, I would, I'm a realist. I'm a classical realist sort of person. In other words, I look back to Thucydides, Sun Tzu, uh, Machiavelli, Clausewitz, uh, a lot of classical thinkers to include going back to ancient, literally ancient history. And I think there's a tremendous amount for us to learn from them what they have to say about it. it doesn't necessarily mean we have to change our values necessarily we throw out our enlightenment and post enlightenment era values out but at the end of the day one of the things that doesn't change is human nature it just never ever ever changes some people think it does i beg to differ and if that's true then power is a unifying theme throughout ages. And I would argue that contrary to a lot of the certainly international relations theory that came out post-World War II in particular, like neoliberal institutionalism, I would argue that we can create regimes that try to do things such as outlaw war or make life more livable. And that's great, particularly for the people who will follow those regimes. And certainly the United States is in that group, which is uh, encouraging. However, across the world, that's not necessarily true. And I would say that sometimes we take a rosier view even of our own uh, outlook uh, than we should, because ultimately power is fungible, meaning power can change, power can morph. You can have economic power that turns into political power. You can have military power that turns into political power. You can have political power that turns into military or economic power. And the point is it moves. And so as you correctly pointed out, the very nature of the flow of power is critical. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had to tell people that when I was on active duty, particularly in operational zones or in war zones, anybody with power counts. I said, well, who has power? Well, do I have to define this for you? It's, it, it may be somebody with a lot of money. It may be somebody with an important tribal position, for example, but they count to the degree to which they have power, to which they can get things done. Power or politics, it's all about getting things done. Ultimately, it's the art of the possible, which essentially means the, uh, the ability to affect your will on the situation or on somebody else. Now, again, I'll stop the, uh, the political theory discussion right there, but I think it has important implications for uh, how we, the military, uh, look at the world. For example, we talk about the elements of national power, and most 
people who are in the military, certainly officer corps, are familiar with the acronym DIME, D-I-M-E, which stands for Diplomatic, Informational, Military, and Economic. Added to that a number of years ago for a while, at least, was FIL. So it was DIME-FIL. And the F-I-L was Financial um, Intelligence and Law Enforcement. Uh, And a lot of that makes a lot of sense, especially when you're looking at power in the international realm, the realm of relations between nation states. But I but I that that D actually I think is more problematic than we like to admit. So D is diplomatic. Diplomatic is widely understood to be the relationships between nations. Okay. Meaning you have diplomats, you have the State Department or Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and they work together, and there's a whole field, and it's a, it's a tremendous field. I've studied it. I've been assigned to embassies. I think it's it's remarkable. But can we reduce all power or even the political element to just diplomatic? So think about the political. To me, that D for diplomatic should be a D slash P, meaning political, because there are institutions, NGOs, there are uh, non-elected tribal or regional leaders, sometimes they're called warlords, sometimes they're not, that have tremendous power that do not subscribe to the approaches that a diplomat would. They are not credentialed by a nation state, and yet they have tremendous, tremendous influence. So What's happened in as I as I speak to and deal with and have dealt with many very intelligent people who are trying to be practitioners of the military arts and sciences of the operational arts. If they simply default to power, even in international relations, being diplomatic, they forget that diplomatic element of power has is it's much more to it. It's political power that reaches down to the local level, and I would argue. That State Department, for example, uh, not cutting them down, but their expertise in many elements of subnational governance is not as strong as we would like them to believe. There's reasons for that. It's hard enough doing international relations. But we cannot, the military, simply say, well, we're, this is a political thing. We're not going to hand it off to the diplomats to handle. That doesn't work when you're at a local level or if you're in a city. You can't rely on some deus ex machina force, some, somebody to come in off, from off stage and just suddenly take care of all that political stuff, allowing us to deal with the military stuff. You're going to have to, as a military person, at least understand the dynamics of power as much as we don't want to get involved in that. It's almost inevitable. And we certainly saw that in every military operation I've ever been involved with. Panama in, um, cert- well, not so much the first Gulf War, but definitely in uh, the post 9-11 world. Inevitably, you had to at least be smart on how to deal with it. So yeah, I think there's a, a rich field of study there uh, for academics. And I think the military needs to pay attention to it. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. In most environments, we, the military, can impose power on an environment we go into. We can try to impose order and control. It's in our nature, whether you think that's a Western civilization thought process, but I think the order of magnitude of complexity of the urban environment and all these different power structures and you know whether it's the, our own national military um, thoughts on power – I think in Iraq, we learned that the difficulty and the you kind of learn by discovery on what happens when you try to impose your own power on a complex organism like a city, or if you just destroy all power structures and then, okay, now you're the only power structure, but you're really not. That's what really hit me when he talked about that was it's our whole mindset of the future of war when we continue to train our formations and to think that they can impose will on an environment as complex as some of the urban environments we have either been in, such as Baghdad, or foreseeable future. 
Yeah, John, absolutely. So one of the first things I, I always ask myself, particularly going into an, an operational area, is, okay, what's really going on here? Who owns the neighborhood? <laughs> there's there's always an official story, and it may or may not be true about the central government controls this, and by the way, they're appointing the provincial governors and then the district governors or district chiefs, that, that it's all the one big monolithic piece, and, and there it is. Well, is that what's really going on there? I would quickly fall back to my youth here in New York City. Um, it didn't take much to realize, if you're growing up in one of the neighborhoods of New York, that the people who are really in charge aren't necessarily the government <laughs> to begin with. In fact, there's an old, it's been said about a number of countries, but it used to be said about New York that New York was ungovernable. And this is, again, sticking with the urban theme, that the city itself was too big, too complex, too everything, and it was ungovernable. Now, we've proven that's not true. And you see we've got a really wonderful city here with all its problems, but it's really quite remarkable, especially considering what it came from, particularly back in the 60s and through the 70s and parts of the 80s. And my point here is you start to recognize that uh, it may, in fact, be the civic organizations, the religious organizations, the cultural organizations, the mafias, the criminal organizations that are really in charge. And so most people will, will establish a modus vivendi even with those they find odious, criminal, the, ma the mafia, for example. You just sort of have a, a rhythm of life, and anybody who can provide that stability or some measure of order, you might not like it, it may be odious to you, but you can live with it. And if not, you pick up and move. And so I think that, I, I mean, I experienced that as a kid here, certainly. So I always, and no matter where I go, it's like, okay, what's really, I always ask myself, what's really going on here? You could see that in most parts of the world. My concern is that by ignoring the, 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 the nature of the challenge that we're speaking about here, we allow our people, especially military leaders and professionals, senior professionals, to be very naive. And that is not a word that I hear used very often to describe uh, military leaders, but I think it's one that we have to face. That in many cases, we are, as a corporate body, very naive when it comes to how the world really works. And there's reasons for that. And it's not comfortable to speak about this because I am a particular, a particularly anti-corruption. Um, I'm very much in favor of the eradication of mafias, for example. And I don't tolerate anything that looks like terrorism or corruption or uh, mafias. But at the end of the day, you cannot afford to be naive. And that speaks to the very essence of power. And I would say that that is a tremendous challenge. Obviously, the question becomes, how do we make people less naive? And I do believe, going back to that uh, General Cohn's example of the stool, training education experience, that you can at least inoculate people uh, against some of the realities they're going to face. But in some cases, by showing them what it looks like, it may be case studies, it may be travel to places that are challenging in that respect, it may be working it into training scenarios. That, that make people think through uh, these, these very complex challenges. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I have my own example and um, the Sons of Iraq in specifically the major urb, dense urban population of Baghdad. And the theory we have about the Sons of Iraq when, you know, as a company commander, I had a thousand of them and they were mostly made up of criminals. And it took us a long time to understand at that basic level how power and control was being utilized as we stood up a security environment, how we use this other source of power to create a short-term security demand, but it comes with multiple chain of reactions, first and second and third order effects. If you empower one group, um, do you delegitimize the other group that you're trying to empower? And I think that 
we learned a lot of those lessons in Iraq through trial and error, and we made a lot of mistakes. And just like you said, even on the economic, where we were just pumping um, money into it, but we were destabilizing the natural flow of, of the urban environment. Now that I've studied urban environments, I can look back and go, man, I really messed some things up there, or, or it took us a long time to get to what right should look like in that specific spot. Um, but more specifically, you are a unicorn, not to offend you, sir, but you were raised in an urban environment. You had operational experiences in Panama and in special forces being assigned some of the most complex problems. And then you were in charge of almost these intellectual organizations that figure out how to solve some very complex problems for the army. Um, And you have amazing insight now into not just urban areas, but complex environments. But you're a unicorn. And I know you talked about training, education, and experience, but do you think that we have the right even personnel model in order to address, continue to address being sent into these complex operating environments. And you, you know me, I always like to focus on urban. I mean, are we developing unicorns that are going to be able to understand these environments quickly enough? I'll give the Army full credit in its adaptability. And you, know, you don't get to, you know, it's kind of the conversation I have with people with megacities. You can avoid it all you want, but the Army never gets to say yes or no to what environment or problem they are given. We're expected to adapt. How is the Army today taking either unicorn, you're creating more unicorns like you or just addressing how to send people into these complex environments and enable them to adapt quicker? Yeah, John. So there's some really interesting aspects of that. Part of it comes down to talent management. Part of it comes down to uh, recruiting. Again, going back to the stool training education experience, well, if you grew up in a city, you may have a leg up on understanding complex environments because intuitively you understand that you have to ask yourself questions like, okay, I'm, I just went into X neighborhood. Who, who quote unquote owns or who runs X neighborhood? That sort of complexity is kind of ingrained in many people in cities. Although I don't want to take that too far because you can have people who live in their own little bubbles in, in the biggest city in the world, uh, and they may or may not truly have an appreciation for uh, the complexity that's going on around them. I mean, that that's just a phenomenon. But I think step one would be, yeah, trying to get people who have that kind of background, not just because of where they were born or raised, but ideally who have some sort of a work experience uh, in this uh, sort of world even educational or training sort of experience. But the, the key is that they've been exposed to that. So I think that, that that starts out on the just recruiting. I think that we should increase our recruiting in uh, dense urban areas. I think that the Army is doing a very good job uh, here in New York City, the recruiting battalion here and the uh, the sister organization over in Newark, New Jersey. I track them fairly closely and I think they're doing a, a really tremendous job. Um, and that's great. But ultimately, I don't want to get into a discussion or debate wherein we say, well, let's pick more urban people versus rural or suburban people. I think it's a losing argument. While we want to increase the urban, at the end of the day, you have to have people who are tremendously capable and we shouldn't change our standards uh, at all. And I do think that we then need to develop the cadres from the moment that they enter into the service, that they understand the complexities of what they're going into. Um, Maybe it's not something directly addressed in basic training. I would prefer it was, actually. Um, That's maybe a separate discussion, but it can at least those elements can be uh, worked in there. But then there's a point at which I would submit that we have done a fairly poor job of managing the talent of the people inside the Army uh, and Department of Defense who are best able to handle these challenges. In the first place, they tend to be very adaptable, and that's great. 
a lot of people will tend to maybe not fit into the rigid norms because by their very nature, um, certainly the people who are going to be best at this, they tend to be pretty curious. They tend to be, I mean, I'll use the term outside the box type thinkers. And when you've got an organization that traditionally, certainly for for the majority of my time in service did not really reward those people. It rewarded the people who fit into the organization well, became good organization people, uh, who went and did training exercises and they always won, had a great narrative. I'm not saying they weren't great officers or NCOs, but are they really the people who are going to do best in these complex environments? And again, that's a dicey situation uh, to try to deal with that. But I think that you have to get comfortable with recognizing your limits to include you have to get comfortable with failure in a particularly in a training environment obviously and you have to get used to the types of people uh, that we prided ourselves in for example during world war ii i mean before that as well you start to realize that sometimes it's not the person who's going to fit in our linear hierarchies that are going to be the best people who are going to go into complex environments show their adaptability their resilience dare i say their anti-fragility be able to not only survive those environments, but thrive in them. In fact, love them, seek them out. And you don't want to have a career penalty for people like that. I think that the special forces branch in particular, likewise, civil affairs um, and psyops have done a pretty good job of seeking to attract those kinds of people. And again, you don't want to get them too far outside of the norm because then they become outliers that people don't want to be associated with. So there's a balance in there clearly. But I think that the Army, I'm speaking about the conventional forces of the army, has to get more comfortable with the discomfort of these complex environments, recognizing there is no school solution. You cannot simply reduce very complex problems to a formulaic approach to winning because it may help you in a tactical scenario, but ultimately it's not going to help you uh, more broadly. So I, I think that there's a significant talent management piece there. By the way, this has been addressed. Um, it, this is not just me throwing rocks at the army. I know that since for the last several years that these types of issues have come up and it, it's gaining the type of attention I think that it should. And we have to recognize that there's not going to be a sea change overnight. Uh, this is something that we have to stick with. But what I love about the dense urban and the megacity aspects of this is when you once you accept that you have to at least be prepared to operate in this sort of an environment, it forces you to take a hard look at who you are, how you're doing your training education, how you're managing your people. And it forces you likewise to say, well, we may need some skill sets or approaches or certain people who may appear to be nonconformist in some ways. And yet, as long as they're professional within the professional norms, maybe they're the ones with the good ideas and, and the flexibility to actually get the job done on the ground. Yeah, I think we could do a whole very long conversation about talent management. And I'm actually pretty excited about the Army's new integrated electronic personnel system, the IPSA, because I think I think you're right. The Army's doing a lot of work and really identifying what the talents are of an in individual and then having it so that that information is accessible. Sometimes I point people to Mosul, you know, 2017. Back then, the way the Army approached it, we couldn't tell you who in our formation of the Army had ever operated in Mosul before or who knew the key leaders that were on the ground already and then use their knowledge gained from the experience peg of your stool in the operational environment. I'm excited about this IPSA because it'll be able to do that from what I've been told all the way down to, you know, if somebody came in and, and they were an electrician on the outside world. You know, last time I was in Baghdad, the guy who was a, an electrician was one of my most used soldiers because we were just moving around so much. And then he would be able to fix somebody's electric or hook us into electric in order to just to survive and 
austere environments. I think there's a lot there under that talent management. I think so, yeah. A lot of these things were, you know, I know a project that we were working on, the Strategic Studies Group for the Chief Staff of the Army back in 2014, 2015, hit on that exact point, which was what would that look like? Now, I think there were many people who came to similar conclusions who had nothing to do with us as well, uh, wherein just a simple inventory of skills and experiences of everybody coming in the Army, it could just be a few bullet points but it could be highly relevant. It could be a language that they were raised around or perhaps speaking that they didn't take the DLPT, the Defense Language Proficiency Test on. We would have no way of knowing them. And certainly personnel assignments cannot be made based on information that the assignments officers don't have or that the units don't know that the information's out there. You simply get a, an MOS, you know, a specialty of this rank gets assigned to this person, and that's how it's done. And by the way, for an organization as large as the U.S. Army, you have to be able to do this at scale. But I would submit, just as you did, that this is not, it doesn't have to be books written on every individual. It could be a simple listing, perhaps by category, of these experiences and or traits and or skill sets that could be incredibly valuable uh, on, on aligning people. I, I think it's critical. It's remarkable that we haven't done it before. Yeah, and I think the advances in machine learning, if you write all this stuff down on an individual, that's great. And if somebody looks at it, but you know, to have a system that through machine learning knows has all that information and then can put together the information to become knowledge for you so you don't have to pull it's being pushed to you on whether it's an individual or an area can scan the army is a million man army we collect information whether it's tactical after actions reports and all that stuff but we kind of struggle with getting that information turn it into knowledge into the right leaders at the right moment of time but I think that some of the advances that we're seeing in machine learning and, dare I say, artificial intelligence, hopefully we're getting closer to being able to not collect just a bunch of data, but be able to turn that data into useful information. Absolutely, John. I think that people, there's also a human element to that too. And I, I fully concur with the technological piece and the, uh, the IT revolution that's going on. I think that people will also self-identify. Uh, people who, for example, in the case of dense urban areas, megacities, there are people who are just attracted to this kind of environment. Uh, whether because they have an urban background, or in many cases they don't have an urban background, but they're just fascinated by how complex it is and, and the, the challenges that are there. So they'll self-identify. Then they should be able to list out, well, here's reasons why I think I'm good at this. You know, I, I have this, that, or the other thing. Or in some cases, this is the type of thing I want to do, as opposed to I want to go to Hawaii or I want to go to uh, Korea or Italy or whatever, you know, the normal assignment choices based on I just want to go there to a place. But what it's about, no, I, I really want to go to a dense urban area, for example. I, you know, I, I'd love to be stationed in uh, the greater Seoul metro area, not just because it's Korea, because it's a big city. There's nothing that, that hits that. And so you want people to be able to self-identify. And there are some people, conversely, who are going to be better at just doing things in the middle of nowhere. I mean, really, I love the, de not my case, but I love the desert. I really want to be as far away from cities as I can. And I would submit to you that that's useful too. Because if you try to jam that uh, square peg into a round hole, uh, you know, as we say here in Brooklyn, that dog don't hunt. We actually don't say that in Brooklyn, but nonetheless, <laughs> you get the idea. No, I think it's, it, I think it's a very, you know, it makes common sense. You know, if you have somebody who grew up as a hunter in the woods, you know, hunting and, and is a master of tracking and all that stuff. You know, whether you can say arguably we used to take advantage of those skill sets more so than we do. You know, I'm not going to, it's a, it's a very hard topic to do at scale. And I think General Perkins always would remind people of that. Some people can train small organizations. Great. I got to train a hundred thousand per month. I got to deal with talent management at scale. And I fully recognize you know, doing that. 
So, uh, you know, this brings me to uh, probably my last question I'll ask you, and I'll try to be, I'll try to push you a little bit on, I don't throw spears, but, you know, whether we're moving in the right direction. So we just covered talent management. I talked about you being a unicorn. So, and we talked about in the very front of this conversation about the Berlin Brigade. And then most people don't know that, you know, they're in New York City, probably the, the world's most structured and highly complex megacity. There is a urban unit, the New York National Guard Joint Task Force Empire Shield, made up of, you know, hundreds of individuals um, who are protecting New York City against a terrorist attack, but they're made up of only individuals from inner cities. Sure, John. So let me provide a little context. So the unit you're referring to, Joint Task Force Empire Shield, which is located here in Fort Hamilton, about 750 troops treated as a brigade-sized element. It's 80, last time I checked, it was 86% Army National Guardsmen. I think it was 12 or 13% uh, Air National Guardsmen and 1% New York State Naval Militia. That's a pretty remarkable unit stood up on 9-11. And the so what here is it's been in existence for 17 years. Virtually nobody had ever heard of it, and they have tremendous expertise in urban operations, particularly for their mission set, which is uh, not really geared on combat. It's it's defense support to civil authorities. Interestingly, they are they have to be drilling members of the National Guard organizations, meaning the normal Title 10 slash Title 32 forces. But when they're assigned to Empire Shield, they're on state active duty. Uh, and those are the troops. If you come here to New York, you'll see them in uh, Penn Station, Grand Central, the World Trade Center area. Uh, Newark, excuse me, not Newark, uh, LaGuardia and JFK Airport, and also at the bridges and tunnels. They have a blocking mission for that. It's made up of people who are from an urban area. They develop tactics, techniques, procedures for their own purposes, obviously, for their mission set. And why don't we learn from them? So at this point, we I would say state that we are. We have very good uh, partnerships uh, with uh, Empire Shield. Uh, right now, the Army TRADOC has, uh, particularly Asymmetric Warfare Group, has a small dense urban terrain detachment here on Fort Hamilton, which is made up essentially of activated National Guardsmen, uh, just a handful of them right now, uh, but tied in with the larger uh, activities. So when it comes to the learning, I don't know that I could come up with a model that I would strongly endorse it. I think we're still in an experimentation phase. So to your question, which is, do we stand up units that are focused on this or do we uh, spread the wealth throughout the force in such a way as you could uh, at least begin to handle the complexities of a dense urban environment? I'm sort of in between on that. And, and let me give you a quick background. So uh, first of all, I strongly agree, as you well know, that we absolutely need a, a, some sort of a training center uh, edu- slash education center for the dense urban piece. I would submit to you it should be uh, right here in New York uh, because it's the largest, densest city in our country. Um, and very importantly, we have a network of incredibly collaborative partnerships with world-class organizations, the New York City Fire Department, New York City Police Department, the Office of Emergency Management, uh, and, and many, many others, universities here. Uh, so, And they cut across certainly conceptual development, but material development, training, education. It's very collaborative. And most of that you can get for free because every, the, all these relationships are mutually beneficial. So the big idea here, from my perspective, is we need a place. And I, I use the old special operations kind of tiering system here. I call it levels one, two, and three. So 
level one would be an exposure to something that's dense urban, megacities flavored at places like uh, Fort Benning, Fort Bragg, perhaps. Uh, you've got Mount Cities, and it's a basic introduction, but don't kid yourself. It's not really complex. Uh, it's okay. It's a good way to start, and we have to start somewhere, and that's great. So you've got that. Then you've got re- the potential for regional hubs. I call that level two. Uh, I'll use the example of Atlanta compared to, uh, as in proximity to uh, Fort Benning. So you've got the ability to reach out to regional partners in a global city, Atlanta, and you could do something more at that level. Having said that, a quick comparison between, say, Atlanta and New York City. So Atlanta's population density of the city is about 3,000 people per square mile, roughly. Brooklyn, where I am right now, is about 36,000 people per square mile, or 12 times that. And then Manhattan, you get densities up to 80 plus thousand, uh, particularly in areas like Chinatown. And you're talking about up 25, 30 times the density, and I would submit the complexity of Atlanta. That's your level one or excuse me, level three in this case, the highest level is three. And so a school of some sort, a training center of some sort, recognizing the limitations on throughput, for you're not going to have every private running through a school here in New York City, but you can train the cadres here. You can train the trainers here who then go to the regional centers, regional hubs, and then they are in charge of overseeing the, the, the more basic level uh, one training at the various school sites. The model is not too different from the way certain skill sets are taught in special operations. But even more broadly, think of how we do jungle training, mountain training. And I, I know, John, you put this in one of your articles. That's exactly what we have to do. You, you have a place that's like in Colorado or in the mountains of Vermont that trains people on mountaineering. And then you get cadres who could then go out and train the trainers. We've done the same thing with jungle. When we shut down jungle school, it took us way too long to restart this thing called jungle school, which essentially evolved in Hawaii out of the Lightning Academy there. But at the end of the day, you have a place that specializes in that. Okay. So on the training and education side, to get to your question, yes, you must have people who are just focused on this. They become the the specialist. There should be an ASI. That's an additional skill identifier for those of you who don't speak Army, that clearly identifies you as a some sort of expert in that area. In the case of jungle, you used to wear a patch on your uniform that said jungle expert. Well, that's pretty obvious. The person was a jungle expert. When they got rid of the patches, you still had it in your file. In this case, we have nothing like that for urban. There's no ASI. There's, there's nothing out there that, that allows you to identify the cadre that's there. And I think for training and education in particular, as well as elements of material development, conceptual development, but especially training and education, you've got to have a place that does that. And I would submit to you, you must have the place that's already got all that set up and that um, where you can have the experiential aspects of this. You could do uh, tremendously impactful activities here that are low cost because you can stay on a place like Fort Hamilton, deal with the FDNY and NYPD for free. So it's low cost. You could do this relatively short duration and have a very high impact on that. In fact, we've been doing this now for a couple of years here and it's starting to grow. Now, to what I think is the essence of your real question is the operational force. I'm a recently retired special forces officer, and I always thought we did a pretty good job having certain specialties resident within, say, a special forces company. You've had, you'd have a team that was a halo parachute team, high altitude, low opening. You'd have a scuba team. You'd have a water infiltration team sometimes, a mountain team, a team that specialized more in close quarters battle than the others might. But you would pick out certain specialties, but that would still be within a company. And then at battalion level, you could manage it somewhat. Uh, along those lines or differently as needed. So I think there's a need for certain specialties in there. From my perspective, I think that we have to have engineer units that really understand the dense urban piece. There's a huge difference between engineering work in a desert 
for example, and, and in a dense urban environment. So I think the, a lot of the enablers have to have that. I think that there should be on the maneuver force side, infantry and, and armor, those that ha- have clearly received more training on that. Just as we've designated the 10th Mountain Division as the 10th Mountain Division, not the 10th Desert Division, but 10th Mountain Division, I think there should be something, a unit that is more focused on that mission set, whether it's a BCT, whether it's a battalion. I'm not really sure. Um, I'd like to see that work go forward. I'd like because I think we need to really analyze this piece. But at the end of the day, I think that shouldn't be an excuse for getting after the problem set right now by attacking the training and education piece directly with real specialists, developing that cadre, and then working from the bottom up, seeing, hey, how does this really work when you've got an army where you're in a, you're in a given assignment really for two years, three years, depending. Uh, and you then rotate to something else. What's the ability to truly stand up that? I would look for lessons learned from the SFABs, the Security Force Assistance Brigades. We're cycling a lot of people through SFABs. I know a lot of those people, or I believe a lot of those people are maybe not the experts in it. They'll get a great experience doing it, but it's not like they're in the Special Forces branch where that's a huge portion of what you do by design in your career field. So I, at the end of the day, I'm not giving you a straight answer. I'm going to split the baby. I'm going to get split the difference there, but we've got to start doing something. I lean towards get the training and education piece right and start cycling units through and then see what's feasible and what the demand signals are. Yeah, it's not a loaded question. You know me, I'm, I'm a fan of taking a very small organization and focusing them on urban just because of all the lessons, you know, most of them will be lessons relearned on urban operations for the doctrine organizations, even experimentation with equipment. And we have much of that, but it's all separate. You know, one of the reasons is that there's, there's just nobody who owns the problem set right now. Once GIF, the Joint Forces Command went away, the Urban Operations Office went away. And, and I try to get frustrated sometimes where the, we have different models, whether it's personnel, units, organizations uh, that, that own the problem set, we're still avoiding committing for urban operations. And I know you're much more aware than I am. And, and the Army has you know, with the AWG detachment there in New York City and all the great training that we're cycling people through, uh, most of the which you're involved. I mean, heck, just put urban, like the island watchers of World War II, you know, put people in cities and their job is to understand that specific city. As you know, every city is different and there's going to be so many variables to the city that, yes, we'll figure it out, but sometimes it comes at a, at a major cost. Yeah, and especially if you start small, John, I think you would do well. For instance, if it was a company size, not a battalion or brigade, but a company size element, I think you could do a lot. The Army has done a lot with specialty companies like the the 911, 911th. Basically, it's the Urban Search and Rescue. Technically, it's Technical Search and Rescue Company out of Fort Belvoir. Same with the 511th Dive Company out of uh, Fort Eustis. The engineers tend to do some of that. The question is with the infantry. Uh, with the armor forces or a combined, you know, a company team, would we be willing to commit that? I think at the company level, yes, we we should. At battalion brigade, I'm not. I just don't know yet because I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. And then next thing you know, we've got a major thing going on in the middle of a desert or, or a jungle, you know. And then you're you might actually get rolled backwards. But by starting small, but starting, I think it's critical. And uh, I think we've really got to get the uh, the training and education piece down right. And we're doing that iteratively. Now, HQDA G35 has a very good program, Strategic Broadening Seminar, that's focused on this. 
And I know it's complex. I give, like I said, this is a major topic that's complex. And I agree with you, although I push the army towards this unit. You know, even the British have a now have an urban specialized uh, unit, which is basically a company plus. But we have to get the experts. We have to build the expertise. If somebody committed to, okay, yeah, I agree with, we should do that. Who are urban experts? I agree with you, actually, that we have to get the training, education, and develop the expertise that in which that's the army's model. We're so big. We have to train these trainers and then send them back out, inculcate the army, your, your AWG term, like a shot in the arm of, of, of knowledge into the force. All right, sir. Well, I, I think we're out of time. I, I really appreciate you sitting down to talk with us on this. I mean, this is a major topic and I'm, I'm going to keep studying it and uh, I know you're going to keep working it, but I think this will be a big value to a lot of our listeners. Indeed. Um, I'll give you a parting thought, which is uh, this urban stuff we're talking about is not just CQB, a close quarters battle. It's much, much broader than that. All too often, we default to a, a very simplistic understanding. Again, going back to our earlier conversation, the complexity is the key here. And John, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out MDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.